This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. a list of 21st century renaissance men, William J. Burns would be at or near the top of that list. He also happens to be one of the greatest storytellers and one of the greatest writers that I have ever encountered. He wears a lot of hats. He has a law degree. He has a Ph.D., He has written books on seemingly every subject. He is the chairman of the board at Sunrise Community Counseling Center. He is the auditor for Salisbury Township, Pennsylvania. He is one of the world's foremost authorities on extraterrestrials and extraterrestrial exploration. And he has expertise on seemingly every subject there is. He also kind of has some sort of a secret in terms of how to get more than 24 hours out of a day, because what he's able to accomplish in the course of a day is something that I just am in awe of. Uh, very, very pleased to welcome back New York Times bestselling author of The Day After Roswell and the publisher of UFO Magazine and the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia, Dr. William Burns. Bill, thanks so much for joining me on the radio again. Hi, Frank. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um... There was a fascinating article that you and I traded emails about in the Jerusalem Post in which the authors of that article went and looked at the experts' take on how much to be concerned about artificial intelligence. Now, we've seen artificial intelligence used in everything from helping regular people compose email to uh, playing Jeopardy and playing chess And uh, the question that the Jerusalem Post asked all these experts was, is artificial intelligence capable of attacking humanity? What is the consensus among the researchers and technology experts? The consensus is that unless there is, like Isaac Asimov wrote in his uh, series of stories on robots, The first law of robotics, according to Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer, the first law of robotics is that a robot, a computer, a robot may not kill or otherwise grievously injure a human being. That is the first law, the first commandment of every robot programmer. Now, however, now, however, We are using artificial intelligence in weapons, in in actual lethal weapons. So we are, as programmers of robotic devices, deliberately, willfully eliminating the first law of robotics and saying, here's where a, a robot can kill a human being. And so the Israeli scientists are saying if we are developing weapons whose purpose is to kill human beings, and by that I mean not just a 
an artillery shell. Okay, an artillery shell. Like you aim an artillery shell, it travels a half mile, lands in a spot. No, this is different. It is the computer itself. The computer itself. Um, there are things called computer-directed, self-directed drones. And the self-directed drones actually make the shoot-no-shoot shoot decisions, actually make the firing decisions. Now, currently, that can be overridden by human programmers, by human controllers. But what if in a war, or in a war during a phenomenal pandemic where humans are dropping like flies, mm. <clears throat> there is no human override of those decisions. Those drones can make the decisions on their own to locate targets and fire. That is an example of artificially intelligent, computer-directed weapons designed to kill humans, and they exist today. That's wild, uh, and it is at the same time frightening and uh, actually, I'm just going to say it's frightening. It's not frightening in anything else. I have been thinking about this for literally years, namely because there's so much science fiction that deals with a conflict between artificial intelligence and humanity. But I've been thinking about it a lot more since July. Now, I think a lot of folks can understand why military-style robots, uh, things like drones, might someday turn violent. But in July, an interesting thing happened. A chess-playing robot broke a 7-year-old boy's finger when it grabbed the child's hand during a chess match in Moscow. Now, that's not supposed to happen. Uh, That chess-playing robot is supposed to be bound by the same sort of uh, commandments that Isaac Asimov laid out. But uh, should this be sort of a warning shot to humanity that let's be let's pump the brakes a little bit before we start inviting robots to uh, be a part of our lives in everything from playing chess to hosting radio shows uh, police robots for example in in texas there was um, a shooter who barricaded himself in a what he thought was a secure location so the sheriff's department used their sheriff's department robot, a mobile bomb, to locate the human being and blow itself up. Again, another example of a computer-directed weapon on its own, finding its target and making a decision to blow itself up. <laughs> uh, so uh, how concerned do you think we should be about artificial intelligence attacking humanity? I'll tell you exactly how concerned I should be. It's happening, Frank, that attack that you're talking about, that uh, the intelligence gathering of that war is happening right now around the world 24 hours a day. Let's say that you were um, an algorithm a computer algorithm, an artificially intelligent computer algorithm. And let's say that in order to not only understand but to master the human race, because you have access to all the phones, access to smartphones, 
access to televisions, access to the media, that you're going to learn as much as you possibly can. So what you do, your job, I'm looking at this now from the computer's point of view, not from the human point of view, from the the computer point of view. So your job is to entice human beings, your future victims, the people you're going to control, entice them to give up the essence of their souls into that computer. Their hopes, their dreams, their fears, their desires, everything about them. Hangnails they can't get rid of. The the silliest little things to the greatest life challenges. Imagine getting the entire human race to pour their souls into that computer so that you can talk, you can respond to, you can... You can send messages back. You can have conversations with the people who are giving, who are willingly giving you their souls. Can you spell TikTok? <laughs> You're so right. Uh, by the way, we're going to take a few questions for Bill Burns throughout the course of the hour. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Bill, I mentioned the idea of uh, science fiction and how it's depicted several disaster scenarios in which humans interact with AI. A lot of folks remember the film 2001 A Space Odyssey. Look, Dave, I can see you're really upset about this. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill and think things over I know I've made some very poor decisions recently. But I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be back to normal. I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence in the mission. And I want to help you. If people haven't seen 2001 or they don't remember it, basically that was the computer, Hal, not wanting to be disconnected, not wanting to be deprogrammed. Can you see a scenario, and this came to light in light of what that uh, engineer for Google said about uh, a uh, an AI bot becoming self-aware in his terminology. Can you see a scenario in which computers and or robots that may not want to be disconnected or unplugged actually become hostile and take issue with the people that created them. If, in fact, that is one of the first commands that the, that the, that the computer has to obey, that is to defend itself against any attempt to cut it off from its power source. Just like any human being mm-hmm. who don't take away my air. It, it, it's the exact same thing. So I can see that. It all depends on the programming. What if, let's take this conversation even further. What if, and this is what I'm arguing on ancient aliens, actually. What if there's a much, our, our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, our founding fathers, they were good 
18th century British, our founding fathers were British, they were good 18th century British thinkers, encyclopedists. That's what they were. They were Renaissance men, our founders. Here's what they believed. They, uh, they weren't traditional Christians. They were deists. Here's what they believed. That a superior intelligence, a divine superior intelligence, they believed in God, a divine superior intelligence, built the entire universe and left it alone and walked away. So that is, it's almost like the machine theory. Mm -hmm. They believe that the universe was a machine and that it was created by a supernatural being who leaves it alone and, and, and it operates on its own. What if that machine were a computer? I mean, that's exactly how they pictured it. And once it's in operation, it's on its own. What if we today here are living in that kind of an algorithm of a supercomputer? Right. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's frightening to think about, but a lot of people have raised that very question, including a lot of very bright people, uh, uh, up to and including Elon Musk. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in Babylon. Eddie, you have a question for Bill Burns? Uh, yes, I'll tell you, Frank, uh, it was good to meet you on Columbus Day and John Castle. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks. Great to meet you as well. Great. You, you were sitting at the table. You're broadcasting next to uh, um, uh, what's his name, Benuzo. Um, I talked to John about buying a radio show. The guy gives me his cell phone number. I'm like, oh my gosh. I said, hamana, 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 like Jackie Gleason. But tonight you brought it up. I think it's like 2001 Space Odyssey with him saying, Dave, Dave. And I go, I blast into the future and I look at Terminator. Uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is living tissue under metal endoskeleton. And I've seen videos of these um, robots they have that they're going to put into battle, I guess, with guns that will shoot people. And at what point do I ask uh, your, your friend on the radio that it, it, it becomes autonomous and starts thinking for itself, and maybe they're going to become politicians? So will we have a robot that's president one day and just controls us and just takes everything away? Eddie, the, let me let Bill uh, take that question however however he wants to address it. Bill, what are your thoughts on these sort of robotic super soldiers and if there might be a scenario in which folks uh, in the near or distant future are voting for robotic AI politicians? Look at the scenario right now. Um, right now, within, I would say, two years, you are going to see robotic delivery trucks. No human beings in them. They'll be doing those deliveries robotically. Same thing with companies like, um, like Amazon, using drones for deliveries, flying drones. What I'm getting at is once you program the computer system directing this to make its own decisions based on an algorithm, the algorithm can be hidden. It can be buried, but that is still going to be oper um, operating. 
what if right now we're living in an algorithm? For example, every time we come up with a new vaccine for COVID-19, the, the virus changes. It's almost as though it's a living thing punking us with new variations every time we have a new vaccine. And the purpose of the new variations is to evade the vaccine we've just developed. Might that sound like an, like an algorithm, a kind of a cosmic algorithm that, that as a human species we're being played with? Uh, it certainly does. Talking with Bill Burns. So, Bill, explain to folks if they're just tuning in and they missed the beginning of our previous conversation, they may understand the dangers of AI or the potential dangers of of robots in general. Why can why can a humanity or a company that's run by humans, an Amazon, a Tesla, any any um, aeronautics defense manufacturer? Why can a company simply not program AI to avoid harm to humans? Why can't they just have that robotic AI commandment, thou shalt not harm a human, and have it be ingrained as part of that robot's programming? Let's say that in your supercomputer, part of your program is to protect the planet, to fight climate change, to come up with the solution, you're the programmer, and you program that master computer to combat climate change. And because you're not, you yourself are not a computer, you don't know all the data about the Earth's climate, you basically give the computer carte blanche to do whatever it can do to any system that will fight climate change. And the computer, analyzing all the data, just like HAL, just like the HAL 2000, analyzing all the data, comes up, looks around the entire planet, comes up with the one solution for what is causing climate change. And that solution, that cause, is human civilization acting on the original algorithmic programming eliminate the cause of climate change it begins to eliminate human beings mm. Mm. like and and instead of a devastating flood an exploding planet it's a virus that seemingly changes Every time we try and fight the virus, the virus is winning. It's affecting more and more of us. How? If I were a computer, I would be using COVID. How quickly is the technology that's driving artificial intelligence advancing? It is advancing so fast. That's why the 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 um, one of these engineers at Google. That's why this person went public. And said that what Google is doing, it's like, this is a modern Victor Frankenstein, basically. You, you build, it doesn't have to look like Boris Karloff. Uh, you build a computer that will exist forever, that will make decisions based on data points that human beings themselves can't even fathom. 
and can make them lickety-split and has complete control over the means of communication, the electronic grid, farms, food production, distribution. Just imagine. Now, believe me, I am. Uh, back in August, the Washington Post had an op-ed exploring some of these same issues. The headline was How AI Could Accidentally Extinguish Humankind. Fascinating piece by Emil Torres, and we, we talked about it at the time. But Torres goes and compares the modern predictions about AI with what people were saying in the 1930s about nuclear power and nuclear weapons and then what folks were saying in the mid to late 1970s about the future of personal computers. And pioneers in those industries were wildly off about their predictions for the use cases of both of those things. Do you think a lot of the people that are positing predictions about the future uh, use of AI today, do you think they may be similarly off base as to the experts of the past? Oh, sure, because there are things that um, we're going to be bumping up against uh, problems, types of problems that human uh, 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 that human beings can't um, present to a computer in such a way that it can get a solution. What the artificial intelligence experts, what the warning is, that what happens when human beings are no longer doing the programming? What happens when um, an artificially intelligent computer is doing its own program? At, at that point, even if you, even depending upon what your primary conditions are, like no harm to human beings, etc., or through your inaction, do not allow a harm to come to a human being. That's the uh, second law, I think. What what happens when, and this you see this happening in algorithms a lot, when you've got these two competing foundational algorithms, like I can't do my job, the computer is thinking, because human beings are in the way. But yet, I've got, my first law of robotics, which is saying that I can't cause harm to a human being. Will the computer figure out a way to do its job and the harm to humanity be a collateral damage, not a deliberate damage? That's what, when computers start doing their own programming, you will see solutions like that. We're going to continue with Bill Burns in just a moment. We'll try and squeeze in some of your calls at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. When we come back in a moment, we're going to talk about Mars. There was a fascinating discovery made on Mars, which you might have heard about. What you might not have heard about is the potential significance of such a discovery. We'll explore it with Bill Burns on the other side of midnight straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined by New York Times bestselling author Bill Burns, uh, who has written The Day After Roswell. He's also been the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia and is someone that has written extensively about the idea of aliens and about the ideas behind space travel. Uh, So much of the future of space travel, actually so much of the present of space exploration, seems to involve Mars. Multiple nations, including our own, are working to launch these missions to Mars. Even if manned missions to Mars are a ways off, rovers are a very present-day thing. And one of the interesting discoveries that has been made on Mars is that of a subterranean lake. Bill, uh, tell folks about this subterranean lake that was discovered on Mars. What exactly is it, and how was it discovered? Well, it, 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 uh, it's near the poles, and it was discovered. Well, first of all, we uh, we have satellites on Mars as well as rovers on Mars, and through various measurements, through various soundings, um, NASA has determined that there is a subterranean lake near the Martian North Pole. Now. The fascinating thing about this is that it has water. So it's not just an, an ancient lake bed that may contain some sediments from, from 3 billion years ago that there was once a piece of organic life. No, this is an active water-filled lake on Mars. If there's water... Right, there's an, uh, wherever there's water, there's usually life. So it may well be that in that lake um, exist life forms. And the fascinating thing, where it gets really crazy, really insane, is at some point we're going to analyze the life forms in that lake, and it's going to be sooner rather than later. And when we analyze that data, when we actually have physical proof, the life forms themselves in the water, in our own hands, and we determine, which I think we will determine, that this is not some alien, strange life form, right, uh, some strange form of amoeba that... Uh, that um, develops two heads or something. No. What we're going to find in those life forms is that in that lake are all the chemicals for building life on planet Earth. Mm. Because what happened almost, almost, almost four billion years ago, as the planets were forming, and there was water on Mars... 
we were bombarded as we're bombarded today, but back then in the early in the early solar system, it was a, a cascade of meteors. Meteors, large chunks, blew whole sections of Mars off the planet. Just just smashed into Mars, blew it off the planet. And uh, this was still in the days when Mars would have had an atmosphere. The atmosphere was blown away by the sun's um, energy because Mars didn't have an iron core the way Earth has. And but in those but chunks of Mars broke off, and they landed on Earth. They landed in the polar oceans that had the form of life. So if life began on planet Earth from chunks of Mars that were blown off by meteors and landed on Earth, and that started life on this planet, guess what? We're all Martians. Uh, when will we know what what sort of DNA is present in that water? Or what for, what types of life forms were once present on Mars? Um, when will we be able to analyze the data f- that's present in that water? What's going to happen is there are going to be um, craft that will have the capability of spectral analysis. So just like we know there's probably water um, on some of the moons of Jupiter and uh, Neptune, um, Enceladus, for example, probably has water. Jupiter probably has water. So what we're going to find out is that our solar system, Mars, the outer planets, are probably teeming with life. And the clue is going to be um, how close is life to planet Earth? My guess is that the way life formed in in our solar system, I mean, I believe that it's happening now. For example, um, those two comets that came uh, um, sailing through our solar system, uh, Oumuamua and Borisov, Mm -hmm. they both had these really weird, uh, the way they were spinning. They were uh, flopping end-to-end. They were spinning around. Um, They were also um, rotating themselves. The way they spun through, it was as if they were lawn sprinklers. And in fact, they probably did have water. Now imagine that they were going through solar systems. So they're not aimed at planet Earth. They're not aimed at planet Venus. They're going through solar systems spewing water. In that water, since bacteria live in space, since viruses live in space, they are basically spewing life. Mm. Now, it's random, but the whole point is they're going through systems where there may be planets that are habitable. And habitable may mean not that there's sunlight and people are walking on the surface, but habitable may mean that there are life forms in the oceans. So we could have a solar system teeming with life in oceans, in subterranean seas, just like planet Earth. Assuming that there was once life on Mars, and further assuming there's no sentient life currently on Mars, 
Would the analysis of the life forms that were in this uh, sample that, that we get from the subterranean lake, could that provide a clue as to what caused the extinction of life on Mars if there was, as, you, as we're assuming, life on Mars a long time ago? Yes, it could. Um, it it could by um, how it reacted. So, for example, um, it's probably unlikely, given how short a time Mars had an atmosphere, that there was any form of civilization on the surface of Mars. But there could have been, I mean, how, how we define life, for example, um, trees on Earth, trees communicate with each other. You'd say, well, if they don't talk, they, they don't talk, but they communicate chemically. For example, when Dutch elm disease hits one tree in a, in a grove, it sends out chemicals subterranean through its roots that alert the other trees, that warn the other trees to protect themselves from the virus. What if there are communities of subterranean life in the lake of in the Martian lake that communicate chemically just the way fish communicate chemically on planet earth it's not just sounds it's not just speech it's chemicals Uh, amazing. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment or if you have a question for Bill Burns. Given what we know about the past of Mars, its present, and maybe its potential future, do you think a, a an Earth-based colonization of Mars is a possibility in the future? Oh, yes. Um, what I think will will be happening is that, first of all, we now know how to make two things. There are um, devices that make oxygen. We can do that. Remember, plants produce oxygen. So in a heavy um, carbon dioxide atmosphere, what do plants produce? Oxygen. So we can colonize planets like Mars um, through... um, being in a symbiotic relationship with the plants that are creating oxygen. So let's just say that as, first of all, I don't see the climate issues being resolved on planet Earth. I mean, let's, let's be blunt. Mm-hmm. This, these storms that hit Florida, I mean, they were, they were like beyond belief uh, uh, deadly. So um, I believe that Humans are going to be looking for other planets, just like, just like we think that um, aliens on, on, if we find aliens in other worlds, they'll be all strange looking. What happens when in the future, and it'll probably be this century, human beings go out into the galaxy and they go out and they're getting impressions of life forms from other planets. And what they find out is that they're us. And that what's throughout the universe are human beings, or at least humanoid type of life. That, um, and what if 
billions and billions of years ago, one of those um, early civilizations achieved the ability to um, send colonists to distant planets. Well, you're not going to send astronauts light years across space. How are you going to transmit? How are you going to colonize distant planets? Well, we're doing it now. Mm. You do it by sending your DNA, by sending a DNA to a habitable planet where life can take form. That's how human beings spread throughout the galaxy. Uh, very, very interesting. And, uh, you know, in some ways, it's sort of an interstellar version of what we know has happened here on Earth. Uh, we know that uh, life on uh, North America, for instance, didn't begin in North America and that uh, people here uh, thousands of years ago came here from somewhere else. Is it really that much of a stretch to think that the same thing could happen on a, on a planetary basis uh, when people are exploring for uh, some of the same reasons? Very, very interesting. Now, one of the things that uh, every president seems to want to try to do, Bush wanted to do it, Obama wanted to do it, Trump wanted to do it, and now um, Biden is trying to do it, is go back to the moon. The conventional wisdom, about why we haven't been back to the moon in over in a half a century at this point when we were making those lunar missions under the Apollo program seemingly all the time in the late 60s early 70s is that America sort of lost interest in it and you couldn't really justify the expenditure of public funds just to do one more lunar trip do you have another theory as to why maybe we haven't made going back to the moon a priority there are a few theories um one is that, and this is the overriding theory, both from conspiracy theorists, and they're out there, to even folks at NASA, and it's this, we weren't the first to go to the moon. That uh, when we got to the moon, if you, there are what are known as, it's fact, I listed them in a book I wrote, would have been 30 some odd years ago. It was, there are these hidden NASA transmissions where astronauts are caught, these the lunar astronauts, are caught talking about anomalies on the moon. Here's one anomaly. I forget which astronaut, so excuse me because I've mixed up all the names. Sure. They, um, they were riding in the lunar rover and one of them said, hey, wait a minute, there's a road here. And the NASA controllers almost panicked when he said that. Don't talk about aliens. There was a road on the moon that this astronaut discovered. There was another instance where an astronaut said, uh, really in an, an excited utterance, when he said, hey, somebody's shooting at us. So I believe what we discovered on the moon were alien bases. The last thing, the last thing we're going to admit to is, oh, there are aliens living on the moon only a quarter of a billion miles away from Earth. Well, they can get to us anytime they want to. Yeah, uh, um, talk about panic. 
Yeah, well, so, that's what I was going to ask. The reason that you think they would suppress that information and not put it, that out there is because of the planet, the planetary panic that would ensue? Absolutely. I mean, if we found out that aliens are using, extraterrestrials are using our moon as a base mm. to spy on Earth, to um, interact with us, to send their... I mean, we would be in, we would be in a panic. So best to pull the astronauts off the moon lest somebody say, hey, look, there's a crashed ship over here. People have said they have seen crashed ships. In fact, one of the people at NASA in the photo section was this, a person called Donna Hare. And she told this story that they were, uh, and I'll tell you two stories about the lunar surface. They were developing photographs from the satellites going around the moon over the lunar surface. And there on the surface, on the photograph as it came up in the machine, was it looked like a black triangle that didn't belong, a spaceship. Mm. The lunar photographer, this was in the days before digital photography, the uh, photographer took an airbrush and brushed out that image. Donna Hare was shocked. She said, why are you doing that to the image? And the person looked at her and said, we're not supposed to find things like that on the moon. (laughs) That was one. That's wild. In another instance, there was the, uh, the person who started the American remote viewing program for the CIA was known as Ingo Swan. Ingo Swan was a true psychic. And um, after the day after Roswell came out, he called me and he said, I wanted to tell you what I have seen on the moon when I remote viewed the moon. And I said, "That, yeah, I'd love to know. I knew who he was. He'd he'd written a book. So he's talking about this. And he says that on the moon, he remote viewed alien structures. And there were people in a kind of a factory building something. Okay, that was one person's subjective impression. Then I met another person who was... um, Today, he was a psychiatrist, a psychologist. When he was in the air, this is what he told me. This was in UFO magazine. When he was in the Air Force, he was a phototechnologist. This was in the days, this was back in the 60s. Back in the 60s. This is before digital photography. Where if you wanted to take photographs of the moon and everything, they had to come into a machine. They were processed in the machine and they came out like long pieces of lasagna. That was how that was done. So uh, this is at an Air Force facility. I forget where. But it was divided into two parts. One part was a conventional, everyday Air Force facility. But there was a part of the base that was secret. Nobody was allowed. You had to have special permission. One Sunday morning, he was on. He gets an emergency call from the other side of the base. Our photo machine is broken. 
can you fix it? And he says, I'm not, I'm on the regular side of the base. Just come over. This is an emergency. He goes over there and he says, the funny thing was I saw people from all over the world, all over the world. Why are they on an Air Force base? I'm seeing people from, from Asia, from Africa, from India. They're all over the world. Why are they here at this Air Force base? He goes to that secure location. He sees the machine. He looks at it. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have part, uh, uh, parts went out. I have to replace parts. I can do it two ways. I can run back on the other side of the base, take all the parts, bring them back here, see if they work. If they don't work, bring them back, make trips back across. He's in the Air Force. That's how you do it when you're in the military. Or, or he said, I can take the machine itself back with me to my shop. When I do that, I can fix it on the spot. The guy says, you do it that way. We need what's inside. It won't come out. They go to the other side of the base with the machine. They have a truck. They get it set up. He fixes it. And you know what comes out of the photo machine? Tells the story. This long strip of photos showing factories and buildings on the dark side of the moon. Mm. And so um, the tech from the from the secret side of the base goes, isn't that amazing? Look at that. We had to take those photos. And when he sees my friend who was in shock at what he was seeing, he realizes he wasn't certified. <laughs> he didn't have clearance to see it. And he looks at him and he says, if you talk, we're both dead. Bill, i got to ask you to pause one moment. We'll continue with uh, Bill Burns in just a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Fly me to the moon Let me play among the stars Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars In other words Hold my hand In other words Baby, kiss me This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. A few more minutes. We are enjoying the wisdom and the company of Bill Burns. He is a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, Bill, I I spoke with uh, an astronaut from the 1970s last week, and I asked him, of all the films about space travel, which did he find to be the most realistic in terms of capturing the space travel experiment and the astronaut the, the astronaut experience? And he said that he thought, no bones about it, it was Apollo 13. Apollo 13 obviously didn't make it to the moon. There's always been some people that have raised questions about what really happened with respect to Apollo 13. 
What have your sources indicated to you and what theories might you have about Apollo 13 that might deviate from what we saw in the Tom Hanks movie? The, uh, the deviation might be that it was never an accident, that what happened was deliberate, that it was we were warned, we were shown, we were told UFOs have buzzed our spacecraft. If you look at some of the hidden NASA transmissions, you will hear astronauts talking about um, there's a ship out there, there is something out there, it's watching us. Um, the lunar astronauts, when the lunar command module was in orbit, they would say there's something out there, they're watching us. And finally, they were, they'd warned us off starting a moon base with the accident on Apollo 13. And supposedly we're watching to make sure that nobody really got hurt from that accident, but it was time to go home. And it was the accident saying, it's over. So you combine that. Now remember, the moon, what we were going to do on the moon was to mine it, because it is a source of phenomenal minerals, that the country... Forget the planet for a second. That the country that can mine the moon, whether it's China, India, or the United States, or Russia, and can transport some of that material back here, it's going to be a gold mine. And so um, are we the only ones doing that mining? What we found out was that there were others on the moon others from another civilization, another society that wanted us off, and they made it clear we shouldn't be on the moon. And that's why we never went back. Uh, it has been uh, – the hour has flown by, Bill, when, as it does whenever we get to speak. I will very much look forward to our next conversation. Uh, we've been talking with uh, William Burns. If you want a, a whole education on a wide variety of subjects – you could type his name into Amazon, whatever your interests are, whether it's uh, Nikola Tesla, whether it's extraterrestrials, or whether it's the Rat Pack. Chances are Bill Burns has a book on it. Bill, I'll look forward to our next interaction. I look forward to it. Thank you, Frank. You have a wonderful, you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, we'll take your calls in a moment, 800-848-9222. Then we'll go live to Lebanon. Your influence counts, so use it. 